Welcome back, everyone, to Wells Preachers Podcast, Palm Sunday Year C. We're beginning a new worship series titled A Holy Week. So it's a little different approach than maybe what you're used to. We often lump all of Lent together. But this year, we're pulling out Palm Sunday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Vigil, if your church has that service, and putting that all into one series. The concept behind that theme, A Holy Week, comes from the word holiday, just short for holy day. The promo text for the series explains about uh, explains on how a holiday, your schedule kind of changes, slows down as you mark some special event or celebrate some influential individual. Well, we're going to do that for an entire week, slow down our schedule for a week as we ponder this most important week in human history. So our theme for this particular day, Palm Sunday, is His Humility, Our Hope. Our participants are Pastor Jonathan Bauer of Good News Lutheran in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, Pastor Joel Rousseau of Faith Lutheran in Tallahassee, Florida, Professor Alan Sorum from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. I'm John Hine, coordinator of Wells Congregational Services. John Bauer, I have to start with you. In the New Hymnals Lectionary, the first recommended gospel reading for the first Sunday of Advent is the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem on the donkey colt. It's the exact same reading for Palm Sunday. So you worked on the commentary for year C. Can you share the rationale behind this and help guys understand the similar yet slightly different emphases of those two days in the church year? Yeah, so it, maybe it's worth mentioning just kind of right at the outset that this concept of, of uh, hearing the Palm Sunday gospel right on the very first Sunday of the church year, the first Sunday in Advent is not something that, that like we came up with. Um, it's something that goes back lots and lots of years in the church. That was the, uh, the appointed gospel for the historic one-year lectionary. Um, I think it also kind of addresses, um, you know, whether, whether you like the solution or not, it does attempt to solve... Uh, I, th I think a problem that guys struggled with a little bit in our uh, current lectionary, which is that you, you know, you end the church year with this emphasis on Jesus' second coming kind of for th three or four straight weeks. And then right away, boom, first Sunday in Advent, what do we hear? Jesus, you know, says, keep watch, I'm, I'm coming back. And so it just seems to to be a, a duplication in a lot of ways. So at the very least, this gives you something a little bit different to talk about at the beginning of, of Advent. Um, but, you know, you think about this, this account, I think it's, it, it's a, an episode in the life of Jesus. All four Gospels talk about it, so it's, it's very well known. But if you stop and think for a second, like, you know, why exactly is it so important? It might not be immediately obvious. I mean, it's not... Uh, a day where there's a, a long sermon that Jesus preaches that we can we can analyze and glean all kinds of wisdom from. It's not a day where he performs some miracle that that benefited hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, it's not really part of Jesus' active obedience for us. You know, it's not like God said, "Thou shalt ride a donkey," and and we didn't do that very well. But thankfully, Jesus did it perfectly in our place. Um, it's not part of Jesus' passive obedience. He didn't suffer anything on on Palm Sunday. Really, the entire significance of the day is is symbolic in nature, um, and and as we see in in the gospel accounts, it's a very carefully orchestrated symbolism by Jesus. He, he very clearly wants to send a message, um, a message that on the one hand he is a king, he is the promised Messiah, um, but on the other hand he's he's a king and a Messiah who is very different from the one that we'd probably expect. 
to be meeting. And that word that's in the theme for the day, that word humility, um, really, really sums it up. So whether we're, you know, when we talk about Philippians, we're going to be using that word humility. The the first reading from Zechariah talks about gentleness in a lot of ways, a, a very similar concept. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, this, this episode, this incident really... Um, you know, here at the beginning of Holy Week, it, it really tells us everything that we need to know about what's going to happen in the coming week. That this this is a king who conquers his enemies by surrendering to them. This is a king who wins over his subjects uh, by serving them. This is a king who's characterized by humility. If it, if it tells us everything we need to know about Holy Week, then you could say it, it also tells us everything that we need to know about Jesus too, because Holy Week is really the central the week of central week of his life. And so at the beginning of the year, uh, to kind of get back around to your, your question here, I think at the beginning of the year, it's a great opportunity to say, this is what epitomizes our King. And as we gather to worship him for the next 52 Sundays, this is the defining mark that sets him apart uh, as our King. He's a King who comes to serve. He's a King who comes to lay down his life. He's a King who rules and, and wins victory through apparent weakness and defeat. At the beginning of Holy Week, there's much more of a natural opportunity for uh, just using it as a preview of of what's to come. This this tells us what's coming. Yes, the events on the day itself are are worth uh, pausing and remembering, but this gives us a preview of what's coming up on Thursday, Friday, um, and then as we look forward to Easter as well. So hopefully that, that <laughs> answers the question a little bit and and uh, helps guys out. Oh, that's really helpful. And you weren't in the uh, the Advent series, but similar similar answer. Just that Palm Sunday really kind of sets up, especially the festival half of the church year. That this is what Jesus' life's all about is demonstrating humility. Joe Rousseau, let me pivot to you. So uh, um, John just mentioned that the theme of the day is His humility, our hope. So in the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 42, we have the humble servant of the Lord described. He's called a a bruised reed that would not break. Then the the gospel reading from Luke 19, we've touched on that. That's Jesus' humble entry to Jerusalem. But we're going to preach on Philippians 2. What are your initial thoughts about how that text drives home our theme of the day? And what do you hope is your people's takeaway when they leave church? So the town where I serve, the big university, is Florida State. And maybe people have seen this before on a football game, but there's a triumphal entry before they begin their football game. So the the mascot is the Seminole, and out comes this Appaloosa horse that's wearing war paint. And you have someone in the traditional uh, Seminole attire, and they plant a spear, and, you know, the crowd goes wild when, uh, you know, you have this massive crowd, and it's this triumphal entry. And I've wondered in my own mind what would happen if out comes this little colt and Jesus practically riding side saddle because his feet are dragging on the ground and, and it doesn't look triumphal at all. And then you get into the readings and you peel back a little bit and you realize why it is triumphant. And uh, John already hit on that is he, he goes into Jerusalem to surrender and he wins. And you see, and in the Philippians text especially, that where you kind of peel back and say, who's this one that's, you know, riding into Jerusalem? Who's this one who's humbling himself even to death on a cross? And that's the one in whom we have hope. That's the one in whom we have forgiveness. Um, I, I loved, and, and maybe a Professor will get into this a little bit, uh, one of the words that, that just intrigued me going through the study again was in, in verse 9, and I don't know if this is a good translation, but the idea of how God super-exalted Jesus, 
and how you know we super exalt him too as we we dig into all that he did for our salvation and then of course in in our own lives of humility and love um so i'll pass it over to professor i'm curious to, to hear his take on that word and of course some of the other words in here that are very very unique as we uh, marvel at the the humble king we have yeah, Professor Storm, why don't you, uh, our listeners, another text study. So what are your, some of your initial thoughts about the text? Super exalt. Um, that sounds like a tautology to me. Uh, exalt. Uh, now I'm going to, I'm just stuck. My head's stuck with super exalt, Joel. Thanks for that. Um, but why not? Uh, how about, I would, from where I come from, I would say it. Deluxe Mamma Jamma exaltation. Um, that's I think I think that's like equal to your super super exalt. I, I like it. It's it's contextual. It's delicious. Uh, okay, regaining regaining my composure. Um, Philippians chapter two. Yeah, there there are the my favorite word Joel is uh, phreneo. Uh, phreneo is. It captures so much, not only of Philippians, but of Paul's uh, prison epistles, so-called captivity letters. As, as Paul writes uh, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, he's, he's got phreneo on his mind. Yeah, uh, that was an intended um, uh, literary illusion. Uh, he's got phreneo on the mind. What does phreneo mean? It means... After you carefully reflect on something, you come to a conclusion that becomes a solid uh, mindset. So what is the solid mindset that he wants, um, that Paul wants the Philippians to have upon careful reflection, spiritual careful reflection? Um, He's going to get into that in the verses that follow. But he says this mindset that he wants us to have after careful reflection that becomes a settled mentality is, is um, it's in Christ. It's in Christ Jesus. So this settled mindset that becomes a way of thinking about ourselves and mission and ministry, it's only possible through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so what is it? Um, he starts off by saying, "It's it's possible. It's only possible in Jesus Christ, who uh, in form being God, he didn't consider his equality with God uh, something to be grasped. Uh, he was in his form being God, taking on the form of a man. Now, what?" What we often do, and I'm not sure about this, maybe what we usually do is start thinking about who is this person, Jesus Christ, true God, true man, completely God, but not merely God, completely human, but not merely human. And and so we really struggle with a lot of this language about, um, about the person of Jesus Christ and uh, the that might, that's legitimate Christology. Do not confuse me here. Don't take me the wrong way. But it's not where Paul is going. Where Paul is going is that here is this God-man who's completely God in every way, but not merely God. He's also human. 
Uh, he has, because he is God, he can claim every right that is his to claim. Uh, but what he does is he empties himself of all those rights and he makes himself nothing and he becomes obedient even to the point of death on the cross. This person, this exalted, super exalted, wondrously exalted God, who's also man, is that he shows us this God-man who makes himself nothing. And he does this, uh, he says to us, he says, I want you to have the same settled mindset. I want you to think about this, and having thought about it spiritually and carefully, I want you. I want this thinking that you're doing to settle down into a uh, a way of thinking about yourself and your ministry, unity of faith, unity of love, unity of purpose, and what uh, with each other, um, and that the glue of that is love. The glue of our unity is making ourselves nothing. And, um, and we can be nothing. We, we can humble ourselves. We can give up our rights. We can do that because look at Jesus. He did all that. And what was the outcome? What blessing? What gift did God give him? Well, to uh, quote my friend, uh, Pastor Rousseau, I like that new pronunciation of your name. That's, that's good. Um, makes me feel like I'm sitting in the company of, of, a, of a great philosopher here. You, what you come out with is this unbelievable glorification. So, so Paul's saying, go ahead and be humble. Go ahead and empty yourself. And you should empty yourself with, with a lot of confidence in knowing that, you know, there's two ways to get exalted. One is to exalt yourself. You know, uh, I can speak to that. It doesn't work real well. It doesn't last very long. I'm, I'm the only one that agrees that I should be exalted if I exalt myself. And sometimes I don't think that's, that's not a good thing. If I, if I think I'm exalted, I'll, my thinking is, well, not really. But what if God exalts you? See, now that's an exaltation. That's a glory that is truly meaningful, truly lasts. It's pretty exciting to think about. So, so there's, a, there's interesting words here, but I think the most interesting thing about the text is the broader, broader narrative. There, you know, it, it would be a mistake to remove this intensely theological, intensely doctrinal section away from the narrative, the narrative of 10 years ago, Paul starting this congregation, the narrative of Paul connecting with Lydia, the narrative of Paul... Um, being arrested and being locked with Silas in in the dungeon, and the the, the earthquake and the and the jailer almost killing himself, but then not, uh, but then asking Paul this beaten call, Paul and Silas, you know, what must I do to be saved? And they're in their chains, they're in their humiliation. They declare with a dignity and a glory that was unmistakable. They said, you know, trust in this Jesus that make us sing even though we're going through this. And then the next thing you know, his whole family's um, baptized uh, at, out of the same bowl that probably his, his wounds were washed with. And this, this little congregation that started under these circumstances has been with Paul for 10 years. 
10 years, they're constantly supporting Paul when none other did. And this congregation, as we know from other places in the New Testament, they, they were poor out of their poverty. They gave great gifts of love and support to Paul to maintain this ministry. So that's the broader narrative. The immediate ministry is Paul's, Paul's talking about this mindset of unity of faith, unity of love, unity of purpose, which all held together with the glue of humility, because where he's going to is his concern for two sisters, Oyota and Sintiki. Now, maybe a lot of people think that's just an offhanded comment, but I, I think it's a big part of why Paul's writing this letter. He's got two sisters that he's done gospel battle with, and they're at odds. He knows that these two sisters at odds could produce two camps in the congregation. So he writes this letter where he uses Christ as an example of giving up his rights. And then um, right after this, in the verses that, that follow the, the, the Christ hymn of chapter 2, he says in verses 12 to 16, he says, Affirm for yourself your calling and election by being obedient. He's, he's looking to Christ, and he's saying, like Christ, be obedient. Like Christ, humble yourself. And then verse 17, he, he Paul talks about his own humility as, as he writes his life is being poured out as a drink offering. He gives up his rights. He gives up everything. And then he talks about uh, humble Timothy. Now, he's giving us a case study of a humble person who's unlike any other person in what in that Timothy cares about the things of Jesus. And Paul says, I don't know, I don't have anyone like Timothy. He cares about the things of Jesus. But then he talks about Epaphroditus, who, who gave up everything for the Philippians and, and who, who is so compassionately concerned about the Philippians. So Paul gives us the case study of Christ's humility, the case study of his humility, the case study of Timothy's humility, and the case study of Epaphroditus' humility. So when he finally gets to Euodia and Syntyche, he can say, sisters, ladies, girls, give up your rights and have this settled down conviction that this mindset, this mentality of humility that allows unity of faith, unity of purpose, unity of love, and um, what, what a great way to enter into Holy Week as we see Christ giving up his rights in a most, most intense way. Here's God letting sinful men pin his knees down against the cross so they can nail his feet, who pin his chest against the, the cross so they can nail his, his hands to the cross. And then he, he submits to his own father, condemning him to our hell. Um, I think that broader and the immediate narrative itself are as important to think about as the individual words in the pericope. Yeah, thanks. That's that's uh, helpful. Walking through the arc of the entire epistle, um, John. Let me go back to you. So, um, if your listeners are eager to start writing, what are your initial thoughts about how you might handle this text? Yeah, I, well, I appreciate uh, everything that Professor just just walked us through there, and I wanted to 
just quick piggyback on a couple of those things. Um, I especially like the focus on um, that that word "forneto" at the beginning and and kind of ex- uh, extrapolating what's all packed into that word a little bit. And I think what strikes me is that once you've once you've reached a conclusion after careful thought and it's become this this settled mindset you know at that point it's it's not just something that uh you know an opinion that you have about this one thing it really becomes a a lens or a framework through which you can you can view uh the rest of the world and the the events that happen in your life and to realize that that two people can be looking at exactly the same thing or two people can be dealing with very similar circumstances and yet they have a completely different froneto about those things and they reach a completely different conclusion about them. So whether it's an opportunity to either uh, grasp onto the rights that I, that I think I, I have a right to or to let those go uh, in the sake of service to someone else, or maybe it's a situation where it's just something that, that is bad that is happening to me and I can either view it as a sign that, uh, you know, God's angry with me or I'm not doing this right or, you know, something else is going wrong or viewing it as this, this is how God works in the life of the Christian, um, that it's lived under the cross. So once you, once you arrive at that, that settled mindset, um, that you can, you can view everything differently. And so as we think about, about Holy Week, this helping us understand how we're supposed to view these events in the life of Jesus, um, I, I, I think that's a, a helpful thought. The, the other thing I want to quick throw in there that, that I always keep in mind, or I, I find it to be helpful when thinking about Philippians a little bit, is just uh, adding a little bit to that that broader narrative that this was a, a Roman military colony. So you had uh, people who had served either as, as soldiers or, or generals in the army, and instead of like a nice pension package where they get a uh, a monthly deposit into their checking account, they got a plot of land in a place like Philippi. And so you think about a place that would have, uh, in terms of its natural culture and just spirit, had a very different freneo than the one that Paul is talking about in these verses. Um, you know, th- this is a military, nationalistic pride sort of place. And so when Paul talks about how this Jesus became obedient to a cross, which is the very symbol of Rome's might and power and, you know, everything else. And Jesus was willing to subject himself to that. Boy, just what a complete reversal of, of everything that would have come naturally to the people in that, in that area. Um, so, yeah, just uh, I really appreciated Professor's thoughts. And, I mean, there's just so much rich stuff to draw on with this text. you got some looks like you have some thoughts about text just kind of building on that that idea of the willingness to give up my rights and humble myself and my relationship um, not only with god but with fellow christians the willingness would come if you're already you know secure in in your standing and so if i i am already exalted through the humility of christ in the eyes of god and I'm going to come back to my word again, because that's the one I really liked. The the fact that God put his stamp of approval, you know, Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. His exaltation shows that everything he did succeeded. Therefore, I have that high, super exalted status in God's eyes. I'm willing to humble myself, and I'm eager to humble myself, because 
I don't have to win any more points, you know, that I have, I'm willing to give up my rights for my relationship, for the mission, for the gospel. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Other thoughts? Just one word that captures what you just said, Joel, is epiaikai in Philippians 4. Uh, he's, uh, let your gentleness be evident before all the translations. Epiaikai is gentleness there. But really what that word means is let your willingness to give up what you have a rightful claim to. Let, let your willingness to do that uh, be evident to everybody. And then he says, the Lord is near. Uh, we we can give up everything because the Lord is the the Lord is near, and uh, we're, we're that we're in solidarity with our Lord by having this mindset. We're blessed by the Lord for having this mindset. We're not above our teacher for having this mindset, and we can also look forward to that uh, that that reality you express by saying. Although we don't see it now, we will see the super exaltation of ourselves on the last day. John, I think kind of maybe just uh, trying to tie a few of those of those thoughts together. As John mentioned at the beginning, this you know if, if a preacher wants to at the beginning of the week or even throughout the week, kind of tease out this concept of a of a holy day. Um, it's a day where things stop. It's a day where we pause and reflect. It's a day where we kind of get our bearings. Um, you know, it's so easy in life just day after day to, to kind of have your head down and you're grinding away and you never really even have the time or give yourself the time to stop and think and, and take stock of, you know, where, where do I sit uh, in my life, in my relationship with God, whatever the case might be. Um, I think these verses at the beginning of Holy Week give us a great opportunity to do that. I mean, there's there's really no visible, uh, obvious connection with the actual events that we hear about in the gospel, except that what we're hearing about in the gospel comes at the start of this week where Jesus is going to take on the nature of a servant, humble himself, and become obedient to death. So it's kind of just this chance to to zoom out a little bit and and realize this is this is where we are this is what is going on this we're we're standing at the precipice of Jesus finally doing everything that he came to do and it's good for us as his people to just stand here for a second with him and and realize a what he did for us and then b also realize that our life follows the same pattern that it's it's humiliation followed by not our own self-exaltation, but but God's exaltation of us. Do you guys have any thoughts on, like, if we talk about malady? I mean, you can you can talk about misunderstanding um, the work of the of the Messiah. You can talk about not having the same mindset of the Messiah, not being humble. Any thoughts on what 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 in this what? How does this text call for repentance? Well, it calls me to repent of me injecting myself into ministry plans. It calls me to repentance for having too strong of opinion as to uh, a way forward with a student, perhaps. 
It calls me to repentance because when I'm talking to my wife, I'm not listening with my heart. I'm waiting her for her to stop talking. Um, at my total lack of humility is upsetting effective ministry and love in action and healing and reconciliation. So there's a, there's a real problem in my arrogant, vain heart that wants to destroy. And we have, I have the antidote. Oops, I'm getting ahead of myself here. That, that's the malady in my heart. Joel or John, you got any thoughts, John? I think the, the, the very vivid and strong action verbs that are, are present in verses six and seven um, just give you a natural opportunity to, to help people reflect on what, is, what does this look like in my life? So you've got Jesus on the one hand not considering his, his nature as God, it's something that he wants to, to latch onto. Um, instead, the thing that he actually latches onto, it's a different verb, but to, to labon, you know, his, the thing that he wants to grab onto is the form of a servant. And so to help people think, I think it's just a, it's a, a way that we think and a way that we talk. Like, what am, what am I trying to grasp at in my life? What am I reaching for? What am I constantly uh, trying to not let slip through my fingers? And how often it's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. The thing that I'm trying to constantly grab onto is everything that I feel that I'm entitled to. And the idea of taking on the form of a servant, um, of existing so that someone else can be elevated and propped up, that's the thing I want to I wanna get away from me as far as I possibly can. Um, so just taking those, those real strong action verbs that... Paul uses um, or, or quotes, as the case might be, to describe what Jesus did, I think just is a natural opportunity to throw in stark contrast what, what we so often do. It seems like, I, I think when I preached on this, if you just even take the phrase, made himself nothing, and almost pose it as a question, like you said, what, what, what would that mean in your life if you made yourself nothing? You don't even have to give any examples. They immediately preached a lot of themselves. Uh, um, and are convicted. Joel. There was a story supposedly from the Revolutionary War of um, there were soldiers that were repairing a fence or something and and this rider on the horse comes up and and he sees that their superior is barking orders at him like hurry up and faster and and he asks him well why aren't you helping them and he said well because I'm a corporal and so the rider gets off his horse and helps them mend the fence and and then <laughs> ends by saying well corporal the next time you need help repairing a fence tell them your commander-in-chief will come and help you out and it was supposedly George Washington and you know I thought of with the the string of things that um, professor was mentioning, you know, that a lot of times in our hearts, we think things are below us, you know, listening to my wife, well, I've got ministry to do, so I don't have time to listen to you, honey, um, or even ministry itself. Um, you know, somebody comes and it's the same person who's been in your office 20 times in the last two days. And you're like, I got more important things to do. And yet if our mindset is that of Jesus Christ, we would listen and that we put them above ourselves. Um, it completely reframes using what John was talking about before, um, a whole lens for viewing ourselves and a lens for viewing life. I, I think right along with that too, there's, I mean, if you really even wanted to dwell just on that, that concept of service, I mean, I think, the world has its own idea of service, and yet it, it so easily gets twisted into 
um, you know, this is how I'm going to make an impact on, on tons and tons of people's lives and really in the process, get a lot of recognition and, and credit for it. And, and very quickly, it's just a, a roundabout way of doing the very thing that we talked about where we're, we're entrusting, we're putting our exaltation in our, in our own hands. Um, and when you think about what that service looked like in the life of Jesus, I mean, obviously, the <laughs> at least in some cases, uh, the people that he served, he, in a sense, did get a lot of recognition for it because they're recorded on the pages of Scripture and, and millions and billions of people read about it. But if not for that, I mean, it's it's one guy. It's one person. It's one woman that he, that he is serving. Um, and it's not the conventional wisdom of what even the world would consider service. Like, let's let's change a community or let's change a society. It's no, who's the one person in front of me right now that needs my attention, needs my ear, needs my helping hand? What about what the, if you want to talk about specific gospel, just the, the good news phrases? I mean, obviously, it's it's pretty obvious that that, that uh, the Son of God is willing to empty Himself to to take on our flesh, to become to take on our punishment. Um, uh, other thoughts that I mean, what what what's all the good news in here that you want to highlight? John? One thought on my mind is, you know, as I contemplate preaching this text it, and, and Professor, um, you know, kind of alluded to this with some of the things that he said, it's, it's so doctrinally rich, you know, it's the, it's the sedes doctrine for the, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. Like every word just needs to be so carefully weighed. At the same time, it, it appears as though it's part of some sort of song or hymn or, or other piece of poetry. And so the idea that this incredibly weighty string of words would be something that, that Christians recited or, or sang or, you know, whatever the case might be, which we generally associate with a, a little bit more, I don't know, levity and, and joy. Um, I think it's just a really, a really cool thought that, that as Christians, this mindset is not just something that, we need to hold on to against all proof to the contrary. Um, you know, the things that these verses describe are proven. They, they've been demonstrated. They, they work. You know, Jesus was exalted. It's not like we were living by, by faith and not by sight. We, we can see what Jesus, what, what God did with Jesus so much so that we can actually just, we, we can sing about this upside down backwards mindset that that uh, Paul is advocating for here in comparison to what the world would would consider to be true and right and and common sense um we know that it's so abundantly evident that that it can actually just it it's it fills our hearts and even our our song i don't think i'd say this in a sermon maybe i would um Probably not, though. You talk about visual evidence that supports these claims. That includes Paul himself, it includes Timothy, and it includes Epaphroditus. These people were successful leaders in that they really did mold people who and shaped people who followed them. Um, the, the fact is that even... 
even social scientific anthropological based researchers say that that leaders have to have virtue now these same anthropologically based social scientific uh, observers of human behavior would say if you don't have virtue fake it pretend you do because your uh, followers need to see virtue the world knows who the truly influential people are the world follows these truly influential people and these truly influential people are not the the cussers and the fussers and the finger pointers and those who uh, you know like the corporal joel cuss uh, barked orders the the influential people are those who humble themselves roll up their sleeves participate in the mess of life and love and and uh, the the people who are the glue of of effective unity and team and purpose in life we we love those people we honor those people uh, again i'm not i i don't know not sure you say that in the sermon but i sure want to say that every day of my life with my attitude my my freneo as i approach life other thoughts Joel just that phrase has always given me pauses you know even death on a cross and you know i for me, I think I, it might be something I dwell on just for a second to help people fully grasp the depth of that because, you know, we have a nice, beautiful cross in the front of our church and people are wearing cross jewelry. And do we do we understand fully the the shame and the, the depth that was associated with that? And yet it makes God's love just shine that much more brightly um, and puts into practice all those things that we talk about, that we, we see how our Savior Exhibit A, as John was talking about, humility and love works. Here it is. We don't walk by, you know, by by faith here. We see it there on the cross, and we get to live it in our lives then too. John, did I see you had something? Yeah, I was just thinking if, and as I mentioned at the beginning, um, in a lot of ways, I. I I like to, and I, I think it, it can be a beneficial thing to use Palm Sunday as a, as a kickoff to Holy Week, um, as a way of sort of setting the stage. And, um, you know, a preacher might be hesitant to say, well, I don't, I don't want to steal all the thunder from the sermons that I'm going to preach later in the week. And uh, to that, I, I mean, I, that thought has crossed my mind a lot of times on, on a lot of uh, days, you know, like, well, this is this is coming up or, you know, what happens next week or, you know, and I, I always find that there's, uh, there's plenty to say when you actually get to that, that next text that you have to dig into. So don't, don't worry about that. Um, but just even using some of the phrases in that first part of the hymn to, to preview, you know, taking on the very nature of a servant, just how much that is embodied on Thursday evening, that as Jesus is, is right on the doorstep of his death on the cross in everything that happens in that upper room, he is serving his disciples. So whether it's washing their feet, whether it is the, the instructions that he's giving them and the prayer that he prays for them. And certainly when it, when it comes to serving them, this new meal of Holy communion, he is, he is serving 
them, he is thinking of them. Obviously, the, you know, the humbling himself and becoming obedient to death on a cross is, is a preview of Good Friday. And then, of course, the exaltation. You know, we already know how this is going to go. We're not starting Holy Week um, sort of suspending our, our, our knowledge of how this is all going to turn out for a second. And, well, let's, let's see if he rises again from the dead this year. We, we, know, we know that that's going to happen. Um, but we're remembering the events that come in between because we know how they turn out. Otherwise, they would have been events that we would have long ago forgotten about. We wouldn't want to remember someone's uh, horrific death on a cross if it hadn't turned out with a resurrection on the third day. Other thoughts? Seeing none. Thank you guys for uh, once again helping us out. Um, looking forward to seeing how this theme just plays out in this little tight series that's only one one week long. Um, so we'll see you next time as we talk about Holy Thursday. Lord's blessings, brothers, as you begin writing.